before we flick to that Q&A. Uh, so there won't be heaps of time to fill those in uh, today, but hopefully uh, that'll be handy if anyone does have questions. And for those who are watching online, um, during the singing of the song following the sermon, um, a mobile number will be popped up on the screen. Uh, and you can quickly SMS a question. It might come through to me in time, but we'll see how we go. Uh, it'd be very handy if you had Jonah open. Um, the great thing about Jonah, at least in the Bibles that we have here, is that as you open it up, the whole book on two pages, right there. And we're going to need that today because as well as looking at chapter 4, we're going to duck back into some of the other parts of Jonah that we haven't dug into quite as much and see how the whole thing uh, fits together. Now, as we briefly observed last week, chapter 3 of Jonah, the second last chapter of the book, ended with a perfectly satisfying conclusion. You might remember the, the way in which Pete kind of reflected on how it really all wrapped up very nicely at the end of chapter 3. And you might wonder, why on earth add another chapter on the end? At the end of chapter 3, we see the apparent repentance of Jonah as he finally submits obediently to God and goes and preaches to the city of Nineveh. We see the repentance and the restoration of the whole city of Nineveh. Uh, they're restored to God's good graces as they turn back to him. And we're left with this hope-filled horizon, both for Jonah's career as a prophet, he's had a pretty stunning kind of response to his preaching, uh, and for the Nineveh's future prosperity as well. They've, they've been shown God's mercy and forgiveness. And in fact, when the Islamic writings, the Quran, when they appropriate the story of Jonah, they kind of rewrite it and include it in the Islamic writings, that's exactly where they finish the story at the end of chapter 3, a great, tidy, neat, happy ending. But not in the Bible, not in the Scriptures. In chapter 4, today's passage, you might call it what is sometimes termed a credit cookie. Has anyone heard about what a credit cookie is? I, I've not come across this before this last week, though I've got no doubt you're familiar with what it is. Think about the end of a movie and the credits start rolling, and sometimes there's a surprise or unexpected scene that's inserted at the end of the credits or in the middle of the credits. It's not a part of the main body of the story, so to speak. In fact, the, the movie might make perfect sense if you just cut it out. But they've added in an extra scene to surprise you. Although I guess the thing is about credit cookies is most of the time they're pretty superfluous to the main thrust of the movie. You wouldn't really lose anything. You wouldn't misunderstand the meaning of the movie if you missed out on the credit cookie. Perhaps, perhaps chapter four is actually more what is spoken about in music and literature terms is sometimes described as a coda. I've got a, a little, um, I, I understand so little about music. So if I get this wrong, musos, come and correct me. I'm not precious about it at all. But from what I understand is that a coda is a piece of music that follows on after the main movement of the music has concluded, after the climax perhaps has been reached. And the, the coda stands apart, sometimes even unexpectedly, from the main piece of music. And yet it defines and reshapes perhaps how you hear all that comes before it. The coda often isn't just a little addendum, Sometimes it sums up the essence of the piece of music after perhaps a particularly rousing concluding movement. And that's what we have here in chapter 4 of Jonah. As the final credits fade out, so to speak, 
the picture fades back in unexpectedly with this ending that grips us and refocuses us on the essence of what the book itself has all been about. Now, we looked at these verses last week, but let's have a glance at them once again. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. After Jonah has responded in mercy to the Ninevites' repentance, we read these words. But to Jonah, this, that is God's forgiveness, seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I'm sorry, I've lost my place there. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's bitterness here is a little bit jarring, isn't it? You probably thought a bit about this. You probably noticed this last week. Jonah despises, Jonah is embittered by God's patience, by God's compassionate tendency to relent from passing judgment, from sending judgment upon people. Jonah's anger is deliberately presented as being pretty infantile in these verses, isn't it? So he's so angry that he, he wants to even just die, he'd prefer just to die here and now rather than deal with it. And yet I do wonder how at ease we ourselves might be with the patience that God displays towards the wickedness that marks our own world. Aren't there moments when God's compassion to a wicked world seems strange, maybe even alien to us? When God's tolerance of, when God's inexplicable patience with a wicked and unjust world leaves us feeling confused, frustrated, maybe even bitter and angry. Uh, I was reading a review uh, in the Guardian newspaper this week of a recent exhibition of Assyrian art that was on display at the British Museum. You might remember that the, the Assyrians were this, this, the city of um, Nineveh was probably the capital of Assyria at the time. And the reviewer writing about Assyrian artworks and they refer to this one that's on the screen here, the reviewer wrote about the exhibition this. They said, Assyrian art contains some of the most appalling images ever created. In one scene, the one that's up on the screen here, tongues are being ripped from the mouths of prisoners, a practice intended to mute their screams when, for the next stage of their torture, they are skinned alive. Uh, thankfully, the, the etching here is a little bit damaged and worn down, and, and so some of what is most graphic and offensive has been worn away a bit there. But friends, I do wonder this. Had we been witness to such breathtaking brutality as this, as Jonah had been perhaps witness to, might we not find ourselves empathising more with Jonah's misgivings than with God's compassion? towards those who are wicked. Usually it just takes a little bit of mockery in the media, mockery of the Christian faith in the media, for us to turn our hearts in anger and bitterness towards those who might oppose us. Imagine having to endure the kind of 
wickedness that Jonah must have observed. See, friends, before we can hope to feel with God, before we can empathise genuinely with God's compassion for Nineveh, I think we'll need to actually genuinely learn to see Nineveh in the way that God sees Nineveh. Throughout the book of Jonah, God repeatedly describes the city of Nineveh as a great city. I don't know if you noticed that rhythm, that repetition throughout the chapters. He describes Nineveh as a city that is great in its wickedness. He describes Nineveh as a city that is great in its significance. And at the end of today's passage, he describes Nineveh as a city that is great in its ignorance. And it's only by getting a proper grasp on Nineveh's great wickedness, its great significance, and its great ignorance that we'll be able to learn how to truly empathise with God's strange compassion towards those who are wicked, like this city was wicked. Uh, Firstly, God sees the great city of Nineveh as a wicked city. We're going to jump back right to the very opening verses of the book of Jonah. Have a look with me at Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. Jonah 1, well, we'll read from verse 1, we may as well. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amity. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. God sees Nineveh as a hotbed of human wickedness. In fact, it's the same kind of language that's used to speak about the city of Sodom, the infamous city of Sodom in other parts of the Old Testament. It's a city of corruption It's a metropolis of immorality. And in fact, Christians have often felt this way about cities, haven't they? And I guess you can understand why. Cities often have this tendency to concentrate the worst of humanity together in one place. And that was certainly true of a place such as Nineveh. I wonder what other cities perhaps come to mind for you. If you think about the the stretch of the Old Testament, what other cities might be brought to mind that enjoy a similar dubious reputation in the Scriptures. Uh, Perhaps a city like Babel and Babylon comes to mind. Cities that were infamous for their pride and their arrogance, often that were stretched out in opposition towards God Himself explicitly. Or perhaps you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, cities whose sexual and moral wickedness are infamous. In fact, a little bit of Bible trivia here. Nineveh, Babel and Babylon, Sodom and Gomorrah were all cities who were founded by cousins. Quite a family, eh? To be able to have found that, that number of cities with that kind of infamy attached to them. And we're going to come back a little bit later today to reflect on the connection between these infamous cities as we wind up our time together. But the point to grasp here is that if we wish to truly empathise with God's compassionate character, if we wish to embody God's own compassionate character ourselves, we can't do so simply by minimising or sweeping under the carpet the reality of human wickedness. God's compassionate heart for sinners is not grounded in an affirmation of our fundamental goodness, as if there were nothing wrong with us. God's compassionate heart is not rose-tinted or soft-focused, 
with respect to the capacity of the human heart to harbour and nurture evil. While the book of Jonah really is a book that champions God's compassion, that celebrate God's compassionate, fundamentally gracious character, it never softens its statements about Nineveh's wickedness. And in fact, chapter 3, verse 9, pops up again there where the king of Nineveh is speaking, and verse, chapter, chapter 3, verse 9, literally describes God's anger as that which burned against Nineveh. Its fierce anger is the language of burning against Nineveh. It's the language of fire and brimstone, intense, consuming displeasure. To empathise with, to even embody God's compassion to our own world will involve, sorry, it certainly won't involve ignoring, whitewashing or failing to grieve and mourn its wickedness. And yet, yet, if that is the only perspective that we have on our world, of its wickedness, if it's only a view of our world's wickedness that fills our vision, then we're likely to end up just as angry, just as judgmental, just as self-righteous and lacking in compassion as Jonah himself was. For God not only describes the great city of Nineveh as wicked, He also describes it as a really significant cultural centre and city. Uh, Have a look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 3, 1 to 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Nineveh's greatness here, its size, the fact that it took three days to go through it, is referring to its prominence, not just that it's a large city, that it's got a large size. The point that's being made here is that this city is no stopover. It's no pit stop. It's not an insignificant landmark in human culture and society. Despite its great wickedness, it is a city of regional significance, of cultural significance. And actually, this isn't the first time that the Bible has described Nineveh as being a great city, or as being significant in God's eyes, for that matter. Nineveh is actually singled out already as a distinctively great city, back right at the start of the Bible in Genesis chapter 10. You might like to go and have a look there. It's a chapter that really describes the founding of the first human cities. After the world had been destroyed and wiped out by Noah's flood, Noah's descendants had been told by God to go out and to fill the earth. And it was Noah's descendants who had founded the cities of Nineveh, Babylon, Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities as wicked as their reputation is, were symbols, were artefacts of God's decision to to spare humanity from complete destruction in the flood, to place a compassionate limit upon the judgment of the flood. These cities were concrete evidence of God's compassionate commitment to sustaining both humanity and the creation that He had made. Uh, You might recall another account from Genesis chapter 18. 
on which God stood on a mountain with Abraham, or at least some angels representing God stood on a mountain with Abraham, explaining how God was about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness and evil. I wonder if you remember how Abraham responded as he stood there with God on the mountain overlooking those cities. Do you remember? Up there on the mountain, looking down over the wicked city, Abraham pleads that God might spare that city from destruction, even if there was only a small handful of righteous people still within it. Do you remember Abraham praying that prayer? And God agreed, if there's only even 10 people in the whole city that are righteous, I will spare it. Unfortunately, it turns out that there was only one righteous person and God held off the destruction while that person ended up escaping. Uh, But the New Testament, this little uh, verse that we're going to pop up on the screen in a moment, the New Testament letter of 2 Peter affirms, repeats, restates this compassion that lies at the heart of God's own character. Uh, These words are from 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter assures us that the Lord does not delay His promise. That's talking about God's returning in judgment. God, the Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is God's character as it's depicted throughout the Scriptures, from beginning, Genesis, to the end. But such merciful longing to see people repent, be spared God's judgment, seems to be so utterly alien to Jonah's way of thinking, doesn't it? Uh, Have a look with me uh, at the the bulk of our passage, chapter 4 today. I'll read from verse 5 through to the end of our passage and we'll reflect on it a bit together. Chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah, this is after God had spared Nineveh and Jonah had been angry, we read in verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up and over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would better for me to, be better for me to die than to live. It's a bit of a refrain for Jonah. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Note first here that after witnessing Nineveh repent of their sin, 
after seeing God relent from sending judgment upon them as a city, what does Jonah do? In verse 5, he went out of the city, he built, built a shelter, so obviously whatever he was about to do, he was planning on doing it for quite some time, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. What was Jonah waiting to see, do you think? Perhaps Jonah was stubbornly waiting in the hope that God's patience would wear out. Perhaps Jonah was waiting in the hope that Nineveh would default on their repentance and he might yet get to witness God pour judgment upon them as a city from heaven. Whatever it was, Jonah was settling in to see an outcome that was more to his liking come about, not the outcome that God himself had brought. Jonah was so obsessed by his own sense of fairness and justice. Jonah was so absorbed in his own momentary comforts. Jonah was so caught up in the mercies that he himself expected to be shown that to him, his concern over the well-being of a temporary shade vine took on an equal scale of importance as God's concern for a city of over 120,000 repentant pagans. Do you get that sense from reading Jonah, that if, if you were to put Jonah's concerns and God's concerns on a set of scales, at least in Jonah's mind, his anger about the plant that withered overnight is equal, equally weighed with God's concern and care for a city of 120,000 repentant pagans. The very idea of such an equation is supposed to strike us as preposterous. The very idea of such an equaling value is meant to strike us as obscene to even be considered. And yet perhaps this whole scandalous scenario of this story is a little bit of a stitch-up to catch us off guard. For as outraged as we are, I wonder if this story is actually being composed to catch us out in our own outrage. For as much as we readily scoff at the infantile priorities and outrage of Jonah, I wonder if we don't sometimes unthinkingly measure our own concerns by the same kind of scales, distorted scales. Might we ever grieve with greater intensity over a missed car parking space than for our neighbours to whom God remains unknowing and a mystery? Might we pray that God's compassion be applied first to our own frustrated plans? With precious little thought to the precarious future of those who don't know God and don't know his compassion and mercy that's on offer. Do we perhaps bemoan the felt absence of God's compassion in the midst of our own griefs and trials while remaining comparatively unmoved with compassion toward those who are altogether ignorant that there even is in existence a gracious character God such as Him? Now, I'm sure that we don't ultimately hope 
to glee, to find glee and happiness in the destruction of others, as Jonah does. But have we got the balance right between our own concerns and those of God Himself? Or might, if we were to place our own on the scales alongside God's compassion for the lost and the ignorant and even the wicked, might we find that that balance condemns the weight of our own concerns and comforts? The thought that there would be those who remain ignorant of His merciful character does seem scandalous to God. Have a look again there at our closing verses of the book of Jonah, verse 10 again. Uh, But the Lord said to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and so many animals. Now, this idea that we find here at the end of the, the book of someone not knowing their right hand from their left is a metaphor for spiritual ignorance. Uh, in chapter 1, we learned that the pagans were ignorant of God's name. They were ignorant of who to pray for, pray to, sorry, for mercy in their distress. In chapter 2, they heard, oh sorry, in chapter 3, sorry, they heard Jonah's preaching of judgment, but they were ignorant about how God might receive their repentance. You might remember that the king, in responding to Jonah's preaching, said, let's repent, but who knows whether this God might relent and spare us. They were ignorant of whether or not God might be disposed to show them mercy and compassion. And yet Jonah had such an in, a sense of entitlement about God's mercy towards himself, that he despised even to the point of death when the heat of the noonday sun went to his head. Jonah was concerned about the heat that he himself laboured under, but seemed completely unmoved by the ignorance of those who lay before him in the city. Uh, Jonah sat on the hill overlooking the city of Nineveh, completely unmoved by 120,000 ignorant pagans who had already recognised their dire need of God's mercy and forgiveness. In contrast, you might recall from the second reading that we had this morning, Jesus, a prophet almost completely ignored by his own people, stood on a hill overlooking God's own city, Jerusalem, and he wept over that city, a city who should have known all about God's merciful character, but who complacently took God's mercy for granted, ignored it, remained unmoved and untouched by it. Remember these words from Luke, uh, the passage of Luke that we read uh, a while ago. We read, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace... But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. The pagans recognised God's word when it came to them. And yet so often God's people remain completely unmoved by it when it comes in their presence. Of course, Jesus expressed God's compassion for the city of Jerusalem 
by doing far more than simply weeping over its stubbornness from a distance, didn't he? Rather than waiting outside the city of Jerusalem and waiting for God's judgment to fall upon it, which would have been just as Jonah had done, Jesus actually enters into the city in a deliberate decision to taste God's judgment for himself in the place of the city. Where Jonah was angry enough to die at the very thought of God's compassion being offered to others, Jesus was moved with enough compassion to willingly die himself so that even those who might despise the day of God's despise the day of God's mercy might come to know the gracious heart of God. Friends, as we finish our time in Jonah, um, and it's a, it's a good time to finish as we're really just starting to get into the rhythm of the year. Uh, our usual programs are yet to begin and to get going, uh, perhaps yet to return to school. Maybe some of us haven't even fully returned to work yet with all that's going on in COVID. It might be worth us to pause and to ask ourselves this kind of question. What might change for us? What might change for us this year if on the scales of our own hearts, a God-shaped compassion outweighed our more self-serving concerns and comforts? What might change for us if on the scales of our own hearts, a God-shaped compassion outweighed our more self-serving concerns and comforts? Perhaps think about it in terms of our own prayer lives, the things that we rouse up enough self-discipline to actually pray about throughout the week. What might change for our prayer if on the scales of our own hearts it was a God-shaped compassion that outweighed our more self-serving concerns and comforts? Or think about how we use our finances and our time over the course of this year. If on the scale of our own hearts a God-shaped compassion outweighed those more self-serving concerns and comforts of our own. Or what might change for who and what we emotionally invest in? What might change about who we engage, uh, about how we engage in and think about church life this year, if on the scale of our own hearts, it was a God-shaped compassion that outweighed our more self-serving concerns and comforts. For in the end, the book of Jonah isn't a book about getting the pagans to repent and turn back to God. It's a book about whether or not God's own people delight in God's gracious character and long to share in it themselves and see others come to taste it and experience it alongside them. How about we pray and ask that over the course of this year, as we look and listen, look at and listen to the words of the Lord Jesus, 